I'm really glad to be here this weekend for these hours with all of you. Appreciate the welcome that's been extended to me. It's uh, nice to come back to Sandy Cove. This has uh, become quickly one of my favorite places. I've even got my own uniform that I brought with me, hoping that the people here would be flattered and give me an extra free meal. <laughs> that hasn't happened yet. But uh, it's nice to be with all of you, and I hope that in the short amount of time I have that I can greet as many of you as possible. This uh, wonderful notion of coming away for 48 or 55 hours, and Pastor has already reflected on a comment or two that I would, would also like to make, so it may sound repetitious, but men are, are busy people. We, we have all these things in our portfolios of life, and it's, it's a real miracle to be able to cross off 40-plus hours off the calendar to do something that we don't do very often, that, and that is to come away with brothers and make the soul the real topic of the, of the whole weekend, to make the soul, to get away from Super Bowls and uh, Dow Jones averages and what company's going under and what company's a startup, all of that stuff which is part of our vocabulary every week. And uh, to come to a place like this and try to meet God, that's, that's a wonderful thing. As I was contemplating our time together, I thought about some of the questions which really ought to dominate a weekend like this. Already you've heard this question, so I launch it again a second time and ask you to just keep rolling it around in your brain over the next hours. Why are you here? Why are you here? Theologically, we could say, well, we're all here because God in his strange and mysterious and unknown ways nudged us all here in one way or the other. But at a different level, each of us made a decision to come this weekend. What was that critical decision that each of us made? Some of us came because a friend invited us. Others came because we've done six retreats in a row. There's a thousand reasons, good and not so good, that could have drawn a lot of us here. Maybe some of us just really needed to get away from the chaos at home. So why are you here? Try to drive that question as deep into your heart as you can and see if you come up with a fresh answer. What do you need? What do I need? It's a, not a very masculine thing to wrestle with a question like that because most of us have been taught to pretend that we don't need anything we cannot provide for ourselves. But every once in a while when we get face to face with the realities of life we recognize we can't do very well by ourselves. And what do we need? And who would be the provider of that need? How would that happen? Is there, is there any possibility to the dream that one could go away from this place at the end of the weekend and have a new, totally brand new perspective upon what life is looking like? Does there come a moment when it's too late for a person to change? I might say right at this point, I'm going on 77 years of age. Probably the oldest person in the room, if you're older, see me later. <laughs> I've put behind me 55 years of marriage, four, 45 years. <laughs> yeah. Today we get applauded for doing that as if that's some great thing to be able to do. 
spent over 40 years being a pastor of four different kinds of churches, from the tiniest to one of the largest. A lot of years behind me. And sometimes I'm tempted to think, well, it's all packed in, it's all been done, there's really nothing that I need, and there's no way I can change. And then somehow in my broodings and meditations, God's Spirit nudges deep down inside of me and says, Gordon, there's still two or three more things I want to change about you. And my wife comes in and she has six or eight more things beyond that. (laughs) What do you need? What, What would you like to acquire that would send you back home slightly different than when you came? One more question. If God wants to speak into your life, into my life, Will we be prepared to receive what he has to say? That's an interesting way to put it, I would think. If God has something to say, am I prepared to receive it? I've now lived long enough to tell you that God has had any number of things to say into my life, and many of them I did not want to receive. I resisted until finally he broke down my resistance and I was too exhausted to put up a fight. And I suspect there are several things that God has in mind that he would like to say to me, and he has to kind of mutter to himself, but you're not ready yet. So even as I have the privilege of talking to you these times this weekend, I'm mindful of this question that God may want to speak into some of our lives in ways that we didn't expect when we got here. I want to be prepared to receive. Several of you have told me that you've read the book Resilient Life, and an author always appreciates when one or two people uh, respond that way, and I always say, oh, you're the one who read the book, uh, which is my way of trying to be humble. But I appreciate the comments. I wrote the book called Resilient Life not because I thought other people needed to learn about resilience, But I might as well be honest. I wrote the book because I have struggled with resilience all of my life. As I said in the earliest pages of that book, I have a suspicion that I um, inherited some tendencies from my mother. I can't say this about my father. My father was a workaholic, if there ever was one. My mother, not so much. My memory of my mother, she's gone now, was that she rarely ever finished anything she started. She had all kinds of wonderful ideas, but they never really got off the ground. And uh, she would talk up a a big story of of this, that, and the other thing, but things just drifted away. Jobs were not held. The house was never quite fully in order. Shirts were never ironed. uh, Dinners never were fully prepared. That was a world in which I grew up, and I loved my mother, and I know my mother loved me, but still... I have a feeling that she passed on to me a tendency which all of my life I've had to work on. My life is full of promises, intentions that were very noble and well put, but many of them would not have ever been completed if it had not been for the people around me and God's Spirit himself who kept pushing and prodding and making sure that I finished what I started. I may be talking to a few people who say to themselves, yeah, I understand that. That's the same pattern that I grew up in. So the book Resilient Life is a book that I wrote because I had to find those things out for myself. 
I did not want to go to the end of my life with all bunch of unfinished things around me. I wanted to make sure that there was completion, that there was strong finality. And that's why I came to this passage of Scripture that uh, Pastor Bob quoted just a few moments ago, and I'm going to do it again because I went to the trouble to put it on the screen. But it's one of the great, great paragraphs of the Bible. And we need to read it over and over and over again. We need to read it slowly. We need to emphasize certain words each time we read it because this is magnificent writing and thinking. The book is written, no one knows who. Uh, I remember a New Testament professor in seminary sending us all to the library with the assignment, give me 4,000 words on who wrote the book of Hebrews, and we thought we were going to have the answer in 15 minutes and discovered the question has been going on for 2,000 years. No one's quite sure who wrote this book. There are suspicions, but no one can be sure. But whoever it was was a brilliant thinker and filled with the life of God. Now, why was this book written? It was written because the people to whom it was written were having a problem with resilience. They had all come to faith in Jesus Christ. Presumably, they had all found themselves in small and large groups that would have been called churches scattered across the countryside and towns and villages. But as the pressure arose in that generation against the Christian faith, as there was persecution... More and more of these fresh young Christians began to drift away from the faith. Some leaders got afraid to lead because they were paying too high a price in persecution. The implication is that some people died because they were leaders. And people who were active in these small and large groups were being picked on, losing homes, being separated from their families, maybe losing jobs. Who knows? The detail is not there. All I do know is that the purpose of this book is to build resilience back into people who are losing touch with what God called them to be in Jesus Christ. That's very, very important. And I have a suspicion that we're seeing an era emerging right now in our American society which matches the problem that this book addresses. We're watching a lot of confusion these days about what it means to be a truly Christian. We're beginning to wonder, what is the purpose of churches anyway? And there's a lot of stuff going out there that's like smoke screening, camouflage. And some of you who are younger are going to have to wrestle with the question in the next years, what is the truly Christian life and how is it distinguished from other formats of life that are floating around in our time and age? And that's what this book, the book of Hebrews, is speaking to that kind of question. So these words, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, what in the world does that mean? Well, you have to look back to the previous chapter, to that long hall of fame of people that the writer mentions who were heroes over the previous centuries and millennia in God's family. Great men, including Moses, including others. And finally, toward the end of that chapter, the writer, you you can get the feeling he's running out of gas, and he says, in effect, there are just multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of more people that we could write about, and I don't have space and time to give you all the names. Just take my word for it. They're all out there, generation by generation. They finish strong in their faith. Then he gets to this chapter, which wasn't a chapter when he wrote it. The, the, The ink just flows, but... 
uh, we get to the beginning of chapter 12, as we call it, and he says, since we're surrounded by all these great people, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. Three or four of you have already come up to me tonight to tell me about your track and cross-country stories. Uh, I get the suspicion each time I use stories out of the track and cross-country world, everybody wants to, you know, they want to ask, so what did you run the 800 in? And if I give a time, they'll manage to find a half second off their time. I've been running faster and faster and faster as the years have gone by. (laughs) I've set four Olympic records in the last 12 years. So I don't talk times anymore because, quite frankly, I've lied so many times, I've forgotten what the real times were. But I do remember this when I was a competitive runner, that every time we got to a cross-country course or every time we got to a track, we, we tried our very best to strip down to the meagerest kind of clothing so that we weren't carrying an ounce of superfluous weight to run in that race. So I understand this line. Let us throw off everything. This guy has been to attract me. He has seen the athletes stripping down for action. And uh, by the way, in those days, most athletes competed in the nude, which we don't do today. But the way things are going on, we might. (laughs) Let us run with perseverance or resilience, the race marked out for us. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus as the pacemaker of the race. Let's fix our eyes on him, the one who started all of this in the first place, who models it completely, perfectly, who gives us the perfect view of the normal Christian life. In that process, he endured the cross. He didn't take its shame seriously in a way that others might have. And when he was through, when it was time, He ascended into heaven and sat down in the most noble, honored place of heaven, the right hand of God. So you consider him, you people I'm writing to, you consider this one who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary as you are and lose heart or your resilience. As I drove down here today, I noticed the signpost that would lead to Philadelphia, and once again I was reminded of a story I've told a million times. When you have a good story, you don't waste it. You keep repeating it. I was in college prep school at Stony Brook on Long Island during my high school years. I was the leadoff runner in a mile relay team that ran for three years at the Penn Relays. Some of you probably did the Penns. I remember my senior year, I was in the pole, in the second lane in the college preparatory Eastern States Mile Championship. The guy on lane one had just set the American record in the 100 meters dash for college prep runners. He was not only a great athlete, he was as cocky as you could get in those days. And as we were getting lined up to get to, the, to hear the start of the, of the judge's pistol, he kind of turned toward me and he said, uh, May the best man win. I'll be waiting for you at the finish line. We call that trash talk. So the gun went off, and sure enough, he exploded off that line. And I remember feeling some of the cinders on the track. They had cinder tracks in those days on my shins as he just disappeared around the first turn. 
and the other seven runners, beginning with myself in the second lane, within a few meters, we were already beginning to mentally settle for second place and to compete for that. We all went around the first turn, down the back stretch. And then about 50 meters before we entered into the final turn down the, uh, toward the finish line, what did I see in front of me but this runner, so cocky. But now he was barely jogging, and his hands were like this on his hips, which is a sure sign that a runner has lost his gas. And all seven of the rest of us ran around him as if he was standing still, and like a godly Christian young man, I waited for him at the finish line. My coach, who loved the Lord, who's been to this day one of the most important men in my whole life, when the race was over, when the other three members of the relay team had run their legs, he took me off to one side of that huge stadium with its 35 or 40,000 people cheering, found a quiet place, put his hand on my shoulder. I shall never forget these words. He said, Gordy, that's what they called me in those days. They don't anymore except my wife. Gordy, I heard what he said to you, and I want you to remember what happened here for the rest of your life. And I want you to digest this principle, that it makes no difference how fast you are in the 100 meters if the race is 400 meters long. I personally am in the last lap of the four. I wake up in the middle of the night quite frequently, and old men will tell you this, and I think about the question of dying. How am I going to die? When will it happen? Will it come slowly or fast? Who will go first, my wife Gail or me? What will it be like to have to say goodbye to someone with whom you have shared now 55 incredible years. Those are old man's thoughts in the last lap of life. A young man in the first or second lap has no idea what those questions sound like and finds it hard to take them seriously. But my coach was right. You spend a lifetime preparing for the last lap because now the thoughts get very, very serious. I said a few moments ago that I want to talk about resilience, and I'd like to lay out for you in these two or three talks that I get to give some of the structure that has come to me over the last many years as I've tried to make sense out of what this Christian life is that the writer of Hebrews 12 is talking about. What does it mean to fix your eyes upon Jesus? What does it mean to allow the Jesus gospel to penetrate to the core of one's being. Men who would call themselves Christian men or biblical men or Christ-following men must wrestle with this question with regularity. And by the way, the question is constantly changing from my teenage years to my 30s to my 40s, my 60s, and here I am in my mid-70s, and I'm asking whole new questions about what it means to follow Jesus. I'm not doubtful. I'm just having to ask questions because the realities of my life have changed, and they will continue to change also for you. Now, you'll notice on the screen that I've put these words, your private world, 
It's a term I coined out of another book that I got to write at an earlier date in my life called Ordering Your Private World. I get so tired of old religious words that lose their, their, their uh, energy like an old rubber band. All my life I've been talking about Jesus being in my heart. I've talked about Jesus, Lord of my soul. Words like that that all of us are very familiar with. But every once in a while, I need a fresh term to waken me up. And it seems to me that when I talk about my inner life, the life that is most intimate in its walk with Christ, what I'm really talking about is my private world, a world that begins in my personal relationship with God and moves outward beyond that. Allow me to talk this weekend with you then about our private worlds and to ask the question, What has to happen in our private world for us to live the resilient Christian life? If you're taking notes, here's the first word I'd suggest you write down. Because the Christian life is really in four dimensions as I see it, and the first dimension has something to do with tomorrow. The second thing that you'll hear about before we leave the room is the word, guess what, yesterday. Because the Christian life is dimensioned not only to look forward to tomorrows with intentions, promises I can make about tomorrow, but the Christian life also looks backwards and asks the question, what's gone on in the previous months and years of my life? Let me talk for just a moment about this idea of tomorrow. I find it interesting that when God made people like you and me, one of the things that he gave to us in our minds is an imagination. I've always felt that my own imagination was a very rich one. I've met people who have far richer imaginations than I do, but mine's not bad. And in this imagination, it's like I have a theater in my head. And on that theater, I can create plays and acts, and I can watch myself and I can watch other people acting on the stage of my imagination. What if so-and-so asked me to do this? What if I got to go there? I remember when I met Gail. What if she'd be willing to consider marrying me? All of that stuff plays in the imagination. It's all about the tomorrows of life. When you think about our capacity to think experimentally about tomorrow, it's a marvelous thing. We all do it. But many of us don't even think about the fact that we're doing it. And yet the gospel is meant to play a role in our imagination. And a man who wants to walk with God, who wants to be faithful in serving Christ, is always looking out into the future with this kind of large question. Where is God taking me? Where will I be a year from now? What will I be doing five years from now? Where can I grow? The first thing that occurs to me when I think about tomorrow, and this will surprise some of you, is I'd like to think for a moment about my conversion. My conversion is a word that's often used to speak about an event back there when I gave my life to Jesus. My bet is that most of us in this room probably could stand and tell small stories about the day we got converted. But what if we're shortchanging that word? What if the word converted means a lot more than some event which happened back in 1982 or 1997 or 2008? You know, 
to use the word that way, I got converted about 37 times before the age of 15. I got converted five times in my fourth year and seven times in my sixth year. I'm kidding with you right now, but it it seems like it was about that. And And I did all those conversions because my Sunday school teachers, and particularly my mother, were so happy. If I wanted to make my mother happy, I just pulled up another conversion. Then when I became a teen year, teenager, I met some very pretty girls along the way, and they were always wonderfully moved and attracted to a conversion at that point. So I can remember several times going to campfires and standing up there and getting converted. It made girls very, very happy. I got converted at the age of 21 at a collegiate conference when it suddenly made sense to me that our God is a saving God that the whole story of Christ and the cross and the resurrection is a powerful life changer for anyone who wants to know their maker. So I got converted again, but this time I think the conversion really sunk in deep, and it was life-altering. But as the years have gone by, I've come to think a little bit deeper about conversion. Would I shock a few of you if I said to you, I got converted this morning when I was taking my shower. I told Jesus I was back at the cross this morning and I wanted to accept him for this day by faith. What in the world was I doing? I was going to the cross and reaffirming my conversion because I've come to realize that conversion is something that as life goes on is deeper and deeper and deeper. There are parts of me that need conversion that I didn't even know were there 10 years ago. So every week, every month, every year, God is opening new vistas into the depths of my private world and saying, here's a place that needs to change, that needs to convert. So for me, the word conversion is a big, big word. It describes the persistent change of the man who wants to be one who walks with God and who wants every day to refresh himself in the presence of the cross and the loving Christ. So conversion is something I think about tomorrow. Where is my conversion taking me? What kind of a man does God want me to be if he allows me to live to 83 or 87? I've met a lot of old men who are not very pleasant to be with because they've not renewed their conversion. They're content to say it happened when I was 14 years of age back there. Now, don't bother me. If God allows me to live to 83, I want to be an 83-year-old man who is freshly converted, who shows the marks of Christ working daily in his life. I know that sounds pompous to some. I know it sounds almost unrealistic, but it's a very important principle to me that my conversion in the tomorrows be ordered by God's presence. By the way, I married my wife Gail every day, too. We got married in August of 1961, 55 or so years. But you know, the love with which I love her today is a thousand times greater than the love I loved her with when I walked the aisle back in August of 1961. If I stayed back there with that love, there'd be real problems. So almost every day when I get up, I ask myself the question, 
how can I be the kind of married husband today that she really wants? And I kind of marry her all over again. And every once in a while, Gary, Gail will say to me, uh, when we might have had a little bit of a tense moment, well, you're going to marry me again today? And most of the time, the answer is yes. So I get converted every day, and I get married every day, and I make these relationships as fresh and up-to-date as possible. Another thing about tomorrow that concerns me is what I'll use, I, I will identify with the word call. What does it mean to have the call of God upon the life of each of us in this room? What does it mean when we say, God calls me, not just to become something, that's conversion, but to do something? That's the exercise of responsibility to find the place in my world that God wants me to serve. I grew up in a pastor's home. My mother was convinced that I was going to become a preacher from the day I got born. I have a beautiful picture at home on my fourth birthday when I'm wearing short blue pants and a nice white shirt. I've got a Bible as big as my chest, and I'm preaching to my family on my birthday, and my mother is so pleased. You can see her face has looked like the face of an angel. My mother desperately wanted to raise a preacher. And I didn't know whether that was going to be turned out, but I, I could just always know that all those many, many years, I felt this call because it was so pressed upon me to be a preacher of the Bible. Then when I was about 64 years of age, I had to write an article for our editor at Leadership Journal on the subject of call, and I wrote it, and I sent it off. Today you'd email it. And I, I remember thinking to myself, this article does very little to excite me. And then I realized it was because my call story was so old. It had been 40, 45 years since I had really had this spark of excitement. This is what God wants me to do with my life. And for 45 years I'd been doing it, but I'd just been doing it. I found myself praying this prayer each day. Lord, do you have a fresh call, a new call, a compelling call for a guy who's 64? And you know, to be candid with you, I can't remember many men in the ages of 60 or 70 ever saying, I got a new call from God. It's almost as if the Bible says calls are only for young people. I don't like that. Lord, do you have a fresh call for a 64-year-old man? I prayed that every day for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then one day, I went off to Germany to speak to groups of pastors in various German cities for about 10 days. And each day, I'd drone on for several hours, and these people would sit there and listen and ask questions. And every once in a while, at the end of one of these days, some young German pastors would come up, and they would speak in broken English, and they would say, then you talk today, you talk to us like a father. What do you mean, I'd say. Well, the old German men, they shout at us and they scold us and they speak about philosophy and theology, but they never tell us their stories. They never tell us where they've struggled, where they've failed, where they doubted. And today, you've been doing that. That's what a father does. Oh, I said, thank you very much. Came back to the United States a week or two later and went out to California and did another conference. And at the end of it, the the leader of the conference stood up to thank me, and he said, you know, the last two days, every time Gordon has spoken, I have found myself on the edge of tears. It's not because he's that bad a speaker. 
I found myself, he said, on the edge of tears because Gordon was talking to me like a father talks to his son. And many of us in this room feel like we don't have fathers. And I'm sitting in the front row listening to this, and it's one of those moments when you like to think the Holy Spirit spoke to you. And the words I heard were, you wanted a fresh call? You are now at an age where you should talk to young men and women like a father. Don't boast about yourself. Don't brag. Don't be critical. Don't be whiny. Just listen. Encourage. Cheerily. Pat people on the back. And if they ask for your wisdom or your story, give it to them. But only when they've asked. That is a great call. That's a call that can be thrilling when you're 64, 68, 75 years of age. It gets you out of bed every morning with the question, will I meet anybody today who needs a father? Because I can do father. And that's my call today. And some of you are headed up toward those upper years in life, the last lap. And one day you're going to wonder, and what does God intend for me to do with my life? And I'm going to say to you, just be a father. Find some young men in your pathway who are looking for someone to cheer them on, to encourage them, to listen to them. And you'll never be without a job. So tomorrow, in my search for resilience, is marked by my ongoing sense of where my conversion is taking me. And tomorrow is taking me where my call wants it to go. Let me just throw another word in there very, very quickly. It's the word legacy. We hear this used around a lot in the financial world. What's the legacy? I'm going to leave my children. (laughs) Well, my children are going to have quite a surprise. But there's another kind of legacy that I need to think about at my age. And for those of you who are 20, 25 years younger than me, when God does take you, what will be the spiritual legacy that you will leave your sons and your daughters and your grandchildren and your close-in circle of friendships? What will be said of you in the days in which you are memorialized? How will you be remembered in the years that follow your home going? What will people say about the work of Jesus in your life? It's never too early to begin to work on one's legacy, not for public relations, but the genuine article at the core of the soul, the character of God in my life. What can I leave my children that will inspire them and move them along in the way of resilience. Now, that's tomorrow. That's my looking out in my imagination spiritually to what God's tomorrows are all about. Is my conversion going on and freshened every day so that I'm newly growing? Is my call fresh and compelling that it gets me going every day? 
Is my legacy solid so that long after I die, I keep on living in the memories of people who saw the life of God in me? Let me show you the second word for the evening. I'll try to make this go just a little bit faster. But faith in Jesus, walking, running that race, fixing my eyes upon Jesus, means not only did I use my imagination to look to the future, but now watch this word. But it means looking backwards with my memory. If God has put into my head a stage where I can look into the future and imagine possibilities, God has also put into my mind, can I use this word, a library. Some would say that every person I have ever met, every place I have ever visited, everything I have ever done lies deep within me somewhere. If that's true, that's scary. But every one of us in this room has to live with yesterday. And you can split yesterday and that library out in a couple of different ways. Because every one of us in this room, to one extent or another, have a yesterday that's pockmarked with wounds and failures and hurts. And some of us don't want to think about it. In the past two weeks, I have sat with men who are dealing at the age of 50, 55 with a sexual abuse that happened to them at the age of 5, 6, and 7. I have sat with a man who's struggling with alcoholism because of things that happened in the future, in the past. I sat with a man just two days ago who's addicted to pornography and doesn't know how to handle it. And you start walking back into the yesterdays and you see triggering points. You see places where the wrong turn was made, the wrong choice was made, the wrong decision was made, and it set people on a pathway in the yesterdays that bring them up to today. Gentlemen, in the work of God in our lives, we are always dealing in one way or the other with the yesterdays of life. Before I get to the positive side, let me take this negative side for just a moment. The Bible's very, very clear about yesterday. It's not psychobabble. This is biblical. When Israel came out of Egypt, they were dealing with 400 years of yesterdays. They had lived the life of slaves. They'd been denied any sense of decision-making, any ability to own things, any way of taking an effort and building things for themselves. They were just human beings that were owned generation after generation after generation. No wonder they acted like such jerks in the wilderness. They didn't know how to be civilized in other ways. They lived with 400 years of yesterdays. And you could say that a large part of the Older Testament is spent in ridding the people of Israel of their memories of yesterday. When Joseph is put into Egypt by his brothers in that caravan, and years later they come to visit in Egypt not knowing he's there, and he becomes aware that his brothers are in town, what does the author of that scripture say? Three or four times, Joseph secrets himself, and he, he, he wretches and sobs and cries immensely 
What's going on? Joseph's yesterdays are coming back, and he's having to deal with what we might call abandonment. His family had kicked him out 15, 20 years before, and all of the thinking has lodged itself deep within him, and now he has to deal with it all over again. I have no doubt that there are some of you who, like me, have had to deal with things out of yesterday. And every once in a while, it just haunts us and neutralizes us, and we have to go back to the beginning and work it all through again. The Bible talks about that quite a lot. It talks about the importance of repenting of things that I have done in the yesterdays that I've never made right with God or with the people I've hurt. Repentance is not just an occasional event. It's a lifestyle. It's a recognition that every one of us in this room is in one way or the other broken and in constant need of repair. Repentance is coming before God. And on occasion, to people we love and maybe don't love so much, and acknowledge and name and identify things I have done that have hurt and wounded other people. I know what repentance is like. I have had to stand in front of thousands of people and repent. And it's humiliating. And it's painful. But it clears the soul. And some of us have lived for years with things we should have repented of, and we've chosen not to because of pride, because of denial. And what it's done is it's clogged all the arteries of our spiritual lives from that point forward. So repentance is something that one has to do with regularity. The Bible also gives us another word about the yesterdays, forgiveness. I repent of what I've done to you and to the Lord. I forgive what you have done to me and the Lord. This is one of the great unique events in the Christian life. Forgiveness. Not holding against other people a charge when they have done something to me. How easy it is for some of us to walk all the way through life holding grudges, keeping ourselves bitter and angry, and every time the face or the name of a person enters on the screen of our minds, we feel the anger arising, and it just paralyzes us until the moment that we learn to forgive. When I was in my late 20s, I had a working relationship for a period of time with a with a good man who one day did something that hurt me very, very deeply. And I was young and immature, and I was not able to handle what he did very well. And in a short period of time, it had never happened to me before, all of this anger began to bubble up in my insides. I found myself thinking about this guy day and night. If I woke up at 3 in the morning, he was the first thing that came to my mind. I dreamed about all the ways I could get back at him. You know, the crazy thing is, I can't even remember today what that conflict was about. But I sure remember how hateful I became. One Friday morning, I found myself on an airplane going to another part of this country. I was to preach in a church that didn't have a pastor, and I was just filling their pulpit for the weekend. I'm sitting in the back of the plane. It's almost empty. I'm by myself. It's like a private plane. And... uh, Suddenly, this conversation begins. Where are you going? 
well, I'm going to such and such a place. What are you going to do there? I'm going to preach the Bible. What are you going to preach about? I'm going to preach about the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Think of it. How can you preach about the love of Christ when there's so much hatred in your heart today? Well, I don't know. What do I do about that? You might try forgiving. I don't know how to forgive. Ask me for the power to forgive. Lord, help me to forgive. Give me the power. You will think this is crazy, but in that moment I had the sensation that someone was carving a hole in my chest, and when the hole had been made, all this inky, dark crap began to flow out of my insides. It went on for at least a half hour or longer, and about the time the plane's wheels touched the ground, the hole was covered back up. I fairly danced off that airplane that morning, 50 pounds lighter what I'd been carrying inside of me. I went on that weekend to preach with a power that I have rarely ever had in my whole life. The words just flowed. It seemed like every thought I had just went deep into the hearts of the people who were willing to listen to me. It was an incredible weekend. And on Sunday night, the leaders of that church came to me and they said something like this. They said, you're a very, very young man. We're looking for a pastor, but we assumed he'd be 15 years older than you. But you brought to us a spirit this weekend that we desperately need. Do you think you'd consider coming here to be our pastor? About 12 weeks later, Gail and I and our small children moved to that city, and we had seven or eight wonderful years of ministry at that congregation. I look back, gentlemen, on that weekend, and I ask myself, where would I be today if it hadn't been for that incident on the airplane? Could God have used me with all of that junk inside of me that was unprocessed, that had not been covered by forgiveness? Can I ask very bluntly, are there some of you in this room who have forgiving to do this weekend? A wife you need to forgive? A father? Mother? A business associate? A friend? Who has wronged you completely? But the moment has come to lay it aside and forgive. Let me give you one more word. When we go back to the yesterdays, we not only have to learn how to repent of things we have done, we not only have to forgive what others have done, but here on a more positive note is a third thing the Bible calls us to, and it's something that a lot of men find it difficult to do, and that's to be thankful. Thankfulness is one of the key epicentric values of the Christian life. A lot of women are pretty good at being thankful. A lot of men are not, and I used to be one of them. When I met Gail, I can't imagine what she saw in me in this area, particularly of life, because I just took people for granted. I just thought everybody owed me. After all, I was a preacher's kid. We didn't earn much money as a family, so people should be generous. I grew up thinking that. And then I meet this woman, and she loves me, 
and we marry, and I discover that every week she's writing 25 to 30 thank you notes to people she's met along the way that week. If I had all the money we were spending from that point to now on U.S. postage stamps and Hallmark cards, I'd be one of the wealthiest guys in the block. But I watched life living with this woman who taught me the value of being thankful. When I am thankful, what I am doing is I am giving, I am assigning worth to something that you have done. If I don't give it worth, if I don't act out in thankfulness, you never ever know what the value of your contribution to me was. And that's why Paul will say to the Colossians four or five times over, be thankful, people. Overflow with thanksgiving. Because he's discovering or he's saying to these people, one of the greatest marks of godliness is to recognize all day long the ways in which people are serving each other, serving us, and in being thankful, we are giving value to what they've accomplished. I'm on a plane with Gail, and the woman in front of us has a crying baby that's making life miserable for everybody. The plane lands, and I watch Gail get up and say to this young mother, I want to thank you for trying so hard to be a good mother. Your baby was sick on this flight, and I know it's been tough on you, but I want you to know I appreciate it when I see a mother trying to love her child. I look over her shoulder, and she's writing a letter to an usher in our church. Dear John, I watched the other day on Sunday morning as you ushered that older woman to her place and you made sure that she was comfortable and she had everything she needed. And I thought to myself, what a good man you are. Thank you very much for being a servant. Guys, I get thank you notes from my wife all the time. They're under the window washer of my car. They come sometimes in my, at my desk in the mail. But my wife can't stop being thankful. And over the years, it's kind of caught up with me. And it's become a very exciting thing to see. What happens to people when you put value upon what they accomplish for your benefits? Does your wife know that you're thankful for her? Does she know that you appreciate all the little and large ways she contributes into your life day by day? Do you thank her for these things? Do your children know that you're a thankful person for the privilege of being their father? Do your friends ever get words of thanks and encouragement and appreciation from you? This is so important in the actions of the resilient Christian life. To repent, to forgive, to be thankful. I mentioned at the beginning of this talk that I went to a prep school in Long Island We had a teacher who in his time was a very famous theologian, Dr. Frank E. Gableine, and he taught what was called a senior Bible course. And he made all of us students memorize about 250 Bible verses during the course of the year. Some whole chapters, others paragraphs. And not only did we have to memorize the scriptures, but we had to write them perfectly with perfect spelling, perfect capitalization, and perfect punctuation. So all of us in that year, we would carry index cards by the dozens in our shirt pocket, and we were always quoting verses. Psalm 46. Big G, God, 
is our refuge and strength, semicolon, a very present help in time of trouble, period. Big T, therefore, comma, we will not fear, semicolon, though the earth be removed and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, period. We hated this. We hated it. We would have done anything to get out of this kind of exercise. But one way or the other, he was going to jam those scriptures into our head. That was yesterday. A deposit made into my life 60 years ago. A little over two years ago, I began to have a bit of a problem with my balance. And I noticed that my hearing was degrading just a little bit. I went to the doctors and mentioned these things, and he just looked at me and he said, Gordon, face it, you're becoming old. That's what happens to old men. You're probably going to the bathroom four times a night, too. I said, no, five. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Well, I noticed in the next month or two, the balance got a little bit worse. The hearing was continuing to go downhill. I went back a second time. You're just getting old. Finally, I went a third time. He watched me walk down the hall of his office, and he said, I think we need to get you an MRI. The next morning, I went and had the MRI, and about two hours later, the phone rang. Gordon, this is doctor. We found a tumor in your head. Now, we don't think it's malignant, but it's going to have to come out. And we have to go into a very sensitive part of your brain that affects hearing and balance and maybe one or two other things. So this is a serious moment, and we need to do some heavy-duty thinking. You want to know what the first thing was that came to my mind in that critical moment? As we used to say, this is the God's honest truth. The first thought that entered into my mind was, Big G God is our refuge and strength, semicolon, a very present help in time of trouble, period. Big T, therefore, comma, we will not fear, period, 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 period. And in that moment, something from deep in yesterday bounced up to today and spoke the word from heaven that I needed to hear. Gentlemen, that's the value of the resilient Christian life. When everything in play from yesterday comes up to today, and everything that's possible for tomorrow comes up to today, and compels belief and behavior and everything we should be. So I love to talk about the resilient life because it's meant so much to me. It's been my daily struggle and preoccupation and concern every day. And I'm hoping this weekend that in some way it becomes also that for you. There is a tomorrow that we need to plan for. There is a yesterday we need to resolve. And tomorrow morning we'll look at two more words. Why don't I have a prayer with us? Father, I want to end this part of our evening with this prayer for the brothers who join me in this room. I thank you for the privilege of being able to speak to them out of my own heart and experience. My prayer is, Lord, that there'll be more than a few of us 
who will find something in all of these words that touches life as they're living it. Lord, some of us in this room really, really need to forgive someone. Some of us need to repent and be forgiven. A lot of us have some thanks to be giving. Conversion, call, all places in our lives where you want to touch us very deeply. So I pray for any man to whom you are speaking that this may be a moment where we can receive. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.